This episode is sponsored by The Juice. That's right, we have a new sponsor. They're going to be with us for the entirety of the quarter, Q4 2021. Maybe beyond that, that's sort of up to you, my listener friend. But I am excited to partner with The Juice. It's a brand new company that sees this industry the way I see it. So it's really tough to find companies like this. But here's the backstory. Here's the context. Almost everything that we want to access in our lives has been curated in a smart, design-centric way. Food, you have Uber Eats, Grubhub, Seamless, etc. Music, I mean, where to begin? Spotify, Amazon, Apple, YouTube, Tidal, Pandora, and so on. From TV to real estate, general media and news to dating. Dating! So why hasn't content about our work caught up? That's why I'm excited to work with The Juice, Unthinkable's Q4 sponsor. The Juice is like the Spotify of B2B content. They curate articles, ebooks, podcasts, and videos for marketing and sales professionals. And after you sign up for free, you open The Juice to find suggestions of content that are both popular among other makers and marketers and hand-picked, quote-unquote, playlists of content based on your specific job and level. So stop sorting through all the mediocre media out there. Find the highest impact content that's been optimized, not for algorithms, but for people. In other words, the stuff that resonates deepest with people who are doing work like you. Visit thejuicehq.com and sign up for free. Thejuicehq.com. Although I like to talk a lot about being original and try my hardest to do so, quite a few things about me actually put me among millions, if not billions of other people on the planet. First, there's the whole heartbeat slash needs to breathe oxygen thing, sure. But also there's my obsessive drive to eat more and more ice cream. It's not unique to me by far. I'm obsessed with ice cream. How much is too much? I've only ever been able to answer that question once at the San Francisco Creamery with something called the kitchen sink. It's literally served in a mini kitchen sink. It costs 63 bucks and three years of your life. Let's see, other things that make me exactly like tons of other people. There's my tendency to overthink things, which initially I listed in this script after the oxygen and heartbeat thing, but before the ice cream thing. But then I decided to put it after the ice cream thing, before trying it out loud, both before and after, before removing it and trying the script that way, before putting it back in, but changing the word millions to tons of people, since I used millions once already, and I thought maybe that was too many instances of the word millions, because you never want to use a word millions of times, especially when that word is millions. Also Marvel movies. I really like Marvel movies. And then, cementing my place among this huge group of humans, there's the planning fallacy. My tendency to have a strangely and consistently optimistic view of how long things will take to do. And inevitably, I underestimate it. Do I learn from the past? No. Because my failure to meet any deadlines in the past were, of course, caused by something else. Something I couldn't control. It couldn't have been me. I could give you a huge list of reasons why my work doesn't resonate, none of them having to do with me. Yep, a huge list. A kitchen sink full of them. Millions. On the show today, our relationship to planning, overthinking, and deadlines, and an investigation into a technique that's become a bit of a trend to address that relationship. In theory, this technique should help us overcome barriers and eventually craft better work. 
in theory. Today, we go streaking. It's day after day after day. Keep it going. It's unthinkable. Questioning best practices to create work that resonates. I'm Jay Akunzo. Okay, so maybe you, like me, are among millions of people who fall victim to the planning fallacy. Routinely, we overestimate what we can achieve in the short term. I do this all the time. Just the other day, I thought, I'll script a new episode, write my newsletter, answer some email, have two calls with clients, and deliver a 45-minute virtual keynote to an event. I did not get all that stuff done, but more on that in a second. So we overestimate what we can achieve in the short term, but we also underestimate what we can achieve in the long term. We try to get really ambitious today and do a ton of stuff, and then when we think about our longer-term goals and aspirations, we usually lower our gaze. We don't set our sights as high as we could because we couldn't possibly achieve all those outlandish things. That sounds delusional. No, we, we can't see what we're capable of in the long term, so we think we're actually capable of less. We can see the short term, so we think we're capable of way more there. But it's the other way around. We're not ambitious enough long term, and we're too ambitious in this moment in time. Let's tackle the long term thing first really quickly. When we talk about ambitious long term plans, it seems too ambitious to achieve because, again, we underestimate what we can do over the long haul. And so usually we don't even try to do it. This is the suggestion of a 2018 study in the Journal of Consumer Research. It was titled The Mere Deadline Effect, Why More Time Might Sabotage Goal Pursuit. Quote, Contrary to the common belief that having more time facilitates goal pursuit by allowing for more flexibility and fewer restrictions, the current work argues that long deadlines may produce unintended detrimental consequences on goal pursuit. End quote. Specifically, the research suggests that long-term deadlines often lead to unintended short-term consequences. For example, we don't do the work because it feels too daunting. Or we shoot for something that actually is too easy to achieve in the long term. Or we overexert ourselves because we can't accurately scope the work or what it takes to do something ambitious long term. So we overexert ourselves right now. Or, of course, in the face of some kind of seemingly impossible, faraway long-term goal, we just quit. Now, let's revisit my day the other day, when I thought to myself, I'll script a new episode, write my newsletter, answer some email, have two calls with clients, and deliver a 45-minute keynote to an event. That's what I planned to do. You know what I actually did? The two calls with clients and the 45-minute keynote. So why do you think I did those first two things and not the rest of that list? Because those first two things were scheduled, mandatory. I was on the hook. It was due and also due to someone else. I had no choice. Interesting. How do we make sense of all this, this long-term, short-term friction, this planning fallacy? Can we somehow use our short-term tendencies to our advantage to build towards more ambitious long-term things. Can we, he asks, 
leading the listener further into the episode he carefully crafted? Well, I'm glad I asked, because that is the promise of the creative streak. To learn more about this concept of the creative streak, we're talking with Georgia Lupi. She's become really well-known in some circles for a creative streak called Dear Data. She's also an information designer. So let's start there. What the heck is that? Um, Hi, my name is Georgia Lupi. I'm an information designer, and that means that every day with my team, I shape the way that my clients and their clients access information, and in my case, information that is specifically data. So um, there's a lot of design involved, there's a lot of understanding the data, and then in a way, translating data and information into a digestible form across various medium and media and outputs. Your work has been described, and I love this, this is a great description here, uh, bridging imaginative wildness and deliberate creative constraint to illuminate the most human and humane dimensions of what we so coldly term data. What's that relationship between the imaginative wildness part and the deliberate creative constraint part? Like, why are both necessary for the work? I think that, um, so obviously there are spectrum in which you work with data. I always like to say that obviously if you need to design a a dashboard for a pilot to land a plane, well, you know, there's not really a lot of imaginative wildness that you can go for. You'll do like a, a red light, a green light, and there's not really a lot that you can do there because that is data visualization for immediate decision-making purposes. But most of the time my work um, is in entertainment, is in campaigns, is for museums, for cultural institutions. So really then having an audience that can engage and take time and spend time with the visualizations. A few years ago, Georgia and another information designer, Stephanie Pusovec, began a data visualization challenge. The project was to be shipped once a week to each other every single week for 52 straight weeks. This is how it started. So we met at this amazing conference that, you know, is kind of like very, uh, I would say, dearly uh, regarding our field called Ayo in Minneapolis at the Walker Arts Center that happens every every year. And like both Stephanie and I were there as speakers. And in our talks, both we were uh, touching upon the importance of sketching with data and like using form of analogs tool to render data to really get closer to what the data really means. So as opposed to just, you know, cramming the data into a, library of available charts and then, you know, getting a result digitally, really kind of like spending time with the data and creating some sort of like very customized visualization for this data can be really a very useful process to be faithful to the nature of data. And our presentations were both full of sketches. And so I think, you know, we bonded over a beer and we discovered that we had so many similarities both exactly the same age, expats. So I'm an Italian living in New York and Stephanie is an American living in London and so many other like really weirdly parallel coincidences in our life that we decided that in any case, we needed to become friends and figure out a way to collaborate. (laughs) So that's the beginning of Dear Data. And, and we started to think about, okay, what is it we want to explore? And we knew that we wanted to get to know each other. And I think 
we uh, settled on an open question before we left the conference. So the guiding question would be, is it possible to get to know another human being through data only? Because we really felt that we needed to tackle the very human aspect of data. And so how can you tell the story of yourself to another person that lives in our continent through data only? Georgia was already really busy. She was leading a company called Accurate, a data science, design, and development studio. They work with brands like IBM, Google, and Starbucks. Georgia was leading the company and the team overseeing a ton of high-stakes projects. So why did she want to add on more work? So at that time, the company was getting a little bigger, and so we hired software developers, and we started to take in bigger projects. And also at the same time, because the company was growing, I was not really hands-on on projects, almost never anymore besides the first catches, but I was really delegating, overviewing, overseeing. And I really, I mean, obviously I say that in retrospect, but like I was in a moment where I needed for myself to find a practice, a project, or let's say, you know, some sort of like next chapter that could put me back in touch with the very nature of data. And at the same time, that could put me back in touch with some sort of like form of making that for me is always so important in my side practice to then be able to have fresh eyes on what I work with on my designers. Here's how the creative streak known as Dear Data would work. The challenge was to send the other person a postcard with a data visualization documenting something about their life every single week. So to start each week, they'd pick a shared theme and then go off and track something routine. Pretty mundane topic from our activities to the sound of our surroundings, to our apologies, to the moments we would complain. So really 52 topics in a way to compose a portrait of ourselves, our actions, our days, our surroundings, our thoughts, our challenges. Then at the end of the week, they would draw something to visualize what they'd collected. They wanted to remove the technology component and go purely analog. So they would draw by hand something on the front of the postcard and on the back provide a kind of legend to understand all the symbols on the front with some other basic descriptions about their week. For example, week 24, a week of doors. On the back of Stephanie's card, it says, About the data. I gathered data on all the spaces I passed through in the week, both internal and external. A space is defined by whether I had to pass through a door or not. End quote. Each space received its own line. The bathroom was a dark blue line. The bedroom was a dark blue line with some cross-hatching. The street was a bright pink line. And so on. So you get this big, beautiful block of vertical lines all across the postcard. And you can see her movement throughout the week. One morning, she moved into the bathroom. Then the bedroom. Out the front door. To the doctor's office. Then the gym. Then back home. Ding! back into the bathroom, and on and on and on, until the very end of the week where she'd copy her sketch from a notebook to the postcard and then drop it in the mail to ship to Georgia across the Atlantic. And so for 52 weeks, these data postcards have been sent from London to New York and to New York to London, sometimes getting lost in the email, sometimes getting really uh, interestingly damaged by rain or other factors. Uh, and, and, And really, I think over a year, we composed a very intimate portrait of ourselves. How did it feel to start that streak? Do you remember what it was like, your energy, what was going through your mind? How did it feel? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I remember that I was a little paralyzed before drawing the first postcard because obviously you feel like, oh, wow, it's the first one. It will have a mark. It needs to be very special. And so I think that the beginning was like, like a lot of drafts from the first postcard and I wasn't absolutely not happy about the results right after because, you know, in the end, I don't know, I, I needed to draw something by the end of the weekend and post it, but I wasn't happy about it. But, you know, I felt very, very precious about it. Then as the weeks moved on, and I'm only talking in terms of drawing right now and so visualizing and not in terms of data collection. Sure. Uh, then as the weeks progressed, I really wanted to all of the times explore a different visual model, a different technique. So in any case, as the series progressed, I wanted to make a series. And so I didn't want to repeat myself. And that's a oh, wait, point. So this became, is interesting. So, so there's a challenge developing within the challenge. Yes, there is a challenge developing within a challenge, at least for me. So like I remember in week 13 or 14, I was feeling like, wow, how can I possibly make 52 weeks without repeating myself? And so then you start to just explore different things, different materials, do collage with data, even use something like, you know, a lipstick to draw with data or like paint or like just different scales. And I think that is really when you start exploring, when you really start to go out of your comfort zone because you've explored already whatever you've felt easy to, to create. Um, but then I think that also in the very end, there was like, I wouldn't say that at some point in the end, it was like, oh, whatever. But we became a little less precious about the precise week because we really started to see these as a 52 kind of a week effort. So a series that also made sense like all together as opposed to necessarily needing to have that week being the most beautiful ever. Um, it is really interesting how things develop over time in this way. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the collection sort of superseded the individual. Like, I, th I think that's how people view career in some way. It's I start mm -hmm. out, this is the job or this is the moment or this is the promotion or the project I'm working on. And then eventually I think you realize, actually, it's, it's all kind of connected. There's only one project at your body of work. So maybe focusing yeah. on that, even though it feels a little meta to talk about your body of work as itself a project, perhaps that unlocks something in a, in a creator. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it really, really does. And I think that then, you know, the more you, you go on with your work life or career, however, however we want to call it, the more really, again, as you mentioned, you see everything like as this journey, as this arc, and maybe you're less precious about that project that you're working on right now needing to be the best ever, but you're really focused on, you know, right now I'm exploring these, these are the constraints, these are the things that are happening and maybe you know you're also a bit more aware of the constraint and like things that happen in your personal life i mean there are there are moments where you can for example embark in one of these very laborious every week and every evening projects and there are moments where you just can't and i think growing a little older it's also accepting that you know you don't always have the energy the time and the availability that you had when you were 24 uh, but maybe you know there are different ways in which you're still growing professionally um and so i, I really really think that like the more that you go through your career, the more you understand that it's a journey as opposed to a series of achievement in a way. There's a visualization for one of the weeks where you and Stephanie documented and then visualized how often during the week your partner inspired feelings of love in you versus annoyance. What do you remember <laughs> about that one? 
<laughs> I mean, I remember that, and, and this is really true for many of the weeks. I remember that my uh, boyfriend at the time, I mean, really, I usually tended to focus only on the things that annoyed me, but by needing to focus only also on the moments that, you know, he inspired feelings of, say, reassurance on me, love, that he dedicated time on me. I mean, I really was able, I think, to get a much fuller picture of what actually our interactions have been, as opposed to the usual oh, I only remember the time that I felt he should have done something that he didn't do, you know? So, and that is really true for many of the weeks. And I think the importance of, of observing your life through this like one layer at a time of uh, happenings only can really help to, to get a fuller and bigger picture of what's actually going on. Any things that you noticed during the week that you can recall even to today? Because again, this is 2013. Uh-huh. So having to track it, uh-huh. I imagine emblazons it in your brain a little bit more vividly. One thing that I still remember is that in real life before that week, I sort of like discounted or not noticed all of the time that he would carry something for me, like really just carrying my bag when I like literally packed too much or carried like grocery for me or asked me to carry something for me or asked me to help me physically. Like, can I help you here physically? Which is something that because our relationship at that point was going on for a few years, at some point I sort of like took for granted. And I think by noticing all of these and by starting this particular category about moments that he would help me physically, I noticed how many times he actually would do that. What was the ultimate purpose at the beginning? So when you think back to planning it out and deciding you were going to do it, was there a declared purpose for doing it with Stephanie? Well, you know, it's interesting because obviously then in retrospect, being the project, you know, having the project became a book and, you know, having the postcards, you know, being acquired by MoMA. I mean, one could think, oh, in the beginning, you sort of like already knew that you wanted to do something that could turn into a real artwork. But... I think we felt both the urge to double down and really explore what we felt was unique about our approach to data and data visualization. And we knew also that both of us were in a moment when we wanted to get back to making and to have a practice that was, you know, something a little let's say, less sterile than our clients' work at the time. And so I guess that was the purpose. And then, you know, obviously one thing that we said is that we were able to get through the end of this very intense project because imagine that every week you're tracking and every weekend you're drawing. I mean, it was really intense, probably only because the other person was not our friends to begin with. And because we were able to hold each other accountable by, you know, almost like looking up with each other in a way and like not wanting to let the other person down. So, you know, we didn't really start right away with the idea that this would have become something specific, but we had this intuition that we wanted to follow. And, you know, we also knew that by doing something for so long, for 52 weeks and creating a series, we will have had some insights about our process. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, that's, I think, how many projects start. I mean, you can't really plan exactly what it will end up being. Dear Data was a creative streak that helped Georgia and Stephanie establish a practice, and that practice exists in the short term. By managing the short-term process, they could equip themselves to do something grander long-term, become world-class at the craft, inspire an audience, or reach heights that you might assume are so ridiculously out of your reach when you view them from the present that you don't even try. Because again, we underestimate what we can achieve in the long-term. So... 
by doing the realistic thing inside the streak in the short term, maybe we can build towards something much bigger and better long term, even if that longer term aspiration feels unrealistic or delusional to say out loud today. The short term efforts compound into something better over time. The process yields the result. But the process isn't the result. The reason I wanted to do this episode today, in part, is because I keep seeing a lot of these challenges happening all across the internet where a short-term process or creative streak is being used to promise you something in the long term. People join that stuff and think, well, I admire the blogger who writes every single day, so if I take up a 30- or 60-day writing challenge, I might be a famous or rich blogger like they are. I could grow a massive Twitter following through this streak or big podcasts through that streak or whatever it is you're making or doing or streaking towards in your work. Lots of these named known creative challenges and streaks exist for us to join. And I think they often attract a lot of people, whether or not they wanted this, who want an unrealistic shortcut. They're not there for the craft or the practice, they don't realize that it's about equipping yourself or increasing the odds for something longer term, they see the short-term streak as a shortcut to the long-term. It's not about the skill you possess or capability you have, it's about generating the result faster or bigger right now. I asked Georgia how she thought about all this stuff, the process versus the result, and the short-term streak versus the long-term aspirations. I decide to start a project with the intuition or let's say the hope that also it will get to an output that can be, you know, an output that I'm satisfied about. I mean, it's not that this really, let's say, streaks and things that you do over and over, um, you know, they're really helpful for practicing and for learning and for growing. But also, you know, it's, it's a lot of your time. And so hopefully there's, a, there's an output there. I would say, though, that by focusing too much on the output, you sort of like lose the almost personal improvement and growth that can be achieved in a way. I mean, achieved is not really a great word, but like, you know, that can be probably experienced if we left the process a little bit more open in the beginning. The most beautiful outcomes personally probably will come because you're really motivated to learn and to explore and to growth because you're really, truly curious to explore something. We hear it all the time. It's about the journey, not the destination. Enjoy the journey. The process is the point. And look, I believe it too. When we make the process the point instead of end results, we tend to get better end results. But we still head into things thinking about results, wanting results. I mean, I love making unthinkable for its own sake. I love the process. Sure, absolutely. But, you know, it'd be nice to get some recognition for the show. It'd be nice to have my hard work get eagerly consumed by more people than currently listen, or maybe have new opportunities come my way, creatively, financially. Georgia sort of rejects the idea that the streak is for the result expressly, but she also acknowledges that there's this inherent tension. We come to it hoping for results. After all, we spend so much time on some kind of streak, even if it's not a challenge to ourselves, even if it's just a consistent project. And because of that, we can't help but think about where it might take us and hope that that happens sooner. I'm still not sure what to make of this tension. 
So let's meet someone else who might help us further understand a lot of this mess. Someone who didn't just launch a side project, but rather built an entire thriving global business out of the creative streak. To learn more, we talked to Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month. They're more commonly called NaNoWriMo. Get it? National Novel Writing Month? NaNoWriMo? Yeah, you get it. Anyway, they're a nonprofit that offers free events and community that helps you track your progress, set milestones as a writer, and connect with other writers, all designed to help you finish your novel, or at least a draft of it. Central to their organization is the month of November, a.k.a. National Novel Writing Month. And a quick thank you to unthinkable producer Molly Donovan for this interview. First up, here's how NaNoWriMo began. National Novel Writing Month actually started in 1999, and the founder was Chris Beatty. And he essentially woke up one day and wanted to write a novel. And he had never taken a writing workshop. He didn't have an MFA. He didn't have all the writing credentials, so to speak. But he looked over at his bookshelf and and looked at some of the more slender volumes of novels and and picked them out, like think uh, Great Gatsby or Catcher in the Rye. And he did a rough estimate that they were 50,000 words. Then he did some very sophisticated math and figured out that you can write 50,000 words in 30 days if you write about 1,700 words a day. And Chris is a very social guy, so he invited a bunch of his friends to join him. And 20 people joined him and they met in cafes after work and wrote together and gave each other, you know, really interesting, fun writing challenges and games. For instance, they would they would, you know, write for five or 10 minutes and whoever had the most words would get a latte. Or after drinking that latte and many other caffeinated beverages, the challenge would be that you would have to write 500 or 1,000 words, say, before you could go to the bathroom. Both are motivating, but the latter is especially motivating. So NaNoWriMo has always been formed around, you know, big goals, uh, big writing goals, and, and, and achieving those goals within the context of a community of support. Here's how NaNoWriMo actually works. You sign up on the website. Uh, it's kind of like signing up for a social media account, fill out your profile. And the basic challenge is 50,000 words in 30 days. We believe a goal and a goal and a deadline is a, is a creative midwife, essentially. And then every day you come back to the site and you enter your word count. So um, I, I think the, the most valuable piece of technology we have, other than signing up, is our word count tracking, our stat page, our dashboard. There have been uh, psychological studies that have proven this, that, you know, writers are always looking for, you know, motivation. And so a lot of, you know, one conventional way is to to motivate yourself with a reward. End of the day, you might, whatever, have a special chocolate or pie or glass of wine, whatever it is. Or, or you might get a fancy massage at the end of writing a novel or go take a spa weekend. But those things are not as motivational as just seeing your word count go up every day on the bar chart. And so it really is motivational and addictive. Uh, some people will, um, you know, update their word count, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred times a day, you know. Okay, so about that previous question I had after talking to Georgia Lupi, the tension between the streak and the result, the process and the reward. 
You know, one thing that I really delight in uh, and, and really kind of discovered and was surprised by when I first started here was the number of people who write for writing's sake. They just like mm -hmm. to write and be creative and they like doing that with their friends. And so that's a big part of it. Uh, we also, though, at the other end of the spectrum, have very serious uh, novelists. Some of them are best-selling novelists who take part every year. So far in this investigation, we know, or at least we can guess, that people join Creative Streaks to get better at something, or maybe to make the process easier or more fun, or sure, maybe they think it's a shortcut to success. But Grant suggested that part of the value of a Creative Streak, especially when it's a named known streak shared by others, like NaNoWriMo, is to feel like you're part of something larger than yourself. I hear so many people say that it's that part of the reason they continued with NaNoWriMo and finished was that they just felt they were part of this worldwide community of people writing novels. It was very galvanizing. And so just looking at Twitter and seeing hashtag NaNoWriMo trending in November and seeing other people encouraging other people on, I mean, that's one way of participating in the community. NaNoWriMo is a small organization, about 10 people but they have a big network of about a thousand volunteers all around the world that make their online activities possible and, when it's safe to do so, their in-person events, what they call write-ins. It all contributes to that core benefit of feeling uplifted and inspired because you're part of something larger than yourself. You're doing a typically solitary thing in community. That is the spirit of the event, though, to feel good about yourself, to feel empowered as a writer, to feel that you can achieve big goals and then, you know, to be rewarded by them. You know, the, the, the achievement itself, writing a novel. People always ask me, they're like, what happens to all these novels? Are they published or what do, what do people get for it? And what they get for it is the satisfaction of writing a novel. I mean, that's the best gift of all. I found that really interesting. Did you catch it? The reward is that you finished the streak. I keep debating all these issues and these ideas, like whether you should focus on the process or look for some kind of result, like a monetary result or some kind of growth in your audience or career or business. But what Grant is saying is the reward is you finished the streak. You did it. You set your mind to something and you completed that something. And I think now you're more likely to ask yourself, well, if I can do that in a month, what about the next few months or years or decades? If I can achieve something like that streak, what else might I achieve? And by the way, as a bonus, you're now walking into those things with better skills and sure, maybe some kind of other gain, like a bigger audience or influence. But the point was not to get those things. The point is to simply keep it going and if it has an end date, to finish it. But... As producer Molly Donovan wondered, Why is the goal here to produce one comprehensive piece and not to just develop a writing practice where you could write, you know, 1700 words a day, but maybe it's 1700 words that um, go into multiple stories or a, mem a memoir or, you know, some other collection of, of pieces. Um, what do you think is the benefit of having that one cohesive work? Yeah, I think you've got to define uh, a goal. It can't be too wishy-washy. So I think mm -hmm. like having it be a novel, having it be 50,000 words, not 40,000 words, having it be 30 days, not 20 days or 40 days, you know, you just need to pick. And, you know, it's like it's like the, the, the studies they've done on psychological flow. Mm -hmm. Your goal needs to be a stretch enough that it's ambitious enough, but not too ambitious, right? If it's too much, it, you'll shut down. So you need to find that sweet spot. And we just think 50,000 words in 30 days is a certain type of magic. So 
you're setting out to do something that's ambitious, but not too ambitious. In that way, a streak helps you avoid the planning fallacy. Despite our tendencies as people to do this, we can't overestimate what we can do in the short term with one rep, one day of writing, or whatever the unit of time is that adds up to the whole streak. We can't overestimate the short term because we're very aware that tomorrow or next week, we got to do it again. Ironically, the thing that helps us stop overestimating our short-term work is to give ourselves shorter-term deadlines, make ourselves more uncomfortable about how often we have to do something. To avoid stopping the streak, we then have to figure out the right amount of work to fit in each short-term container of time. This feels like a delicate idea. I mean, it took a lot of sentences to explain what is ultimately very simple to say. It's, It's just hard to do. Be ambitious, but not too ambitious. Plan ahead a little, but not too much. Simple to say, not so simple to execute. Grant and his team know that, and so they've adjusted their program accordingly. Beforehand, we have this whole period called nano prep, which which lasts essentially a couple of months. We kick it off in September. A lot of people we aren't planners; they're they're pantsers, and and they just show up on you know the eve of NaNoWriMo and start start writing when the clock strikes strikes. You midnight. call them a, a pantsers? What's a pantsers? Pants? So pantser means writing by the seat of your pants. <laughs> oh, I like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so I think with creativity, there's always an improvisational element that you need to honor and think about. On the other hand, we also do, on the other end of the spectrum, are planners. And so planners come in many forms. There's many different ways to, you know, plot your novel ahead of time. And some people write, you know, 20, 30-page meticulously single-spaced outlines. And other people might just jot down some ideas in, in a moleskin notebook. In between the planner and the pantser, we have what we call plancers. Okay. And they do a little bit of planning and they do a little bit of pantsing, but not either one. So every writer, I mean, part of NaNoWriMo is really about exploring your creative process, also experimenting with your creative process. Like I've planned novels, I've plants novels, I've pants novels, you know, I think like developing all those skills are really important, actually. And I just recommend that everybody try something a little different every NaNoWriMo. So whether you plan or pants or plants, it helps to start and finish a creative streak. Grant knows that firsthand. He's finished his fair share of NaNoWriMo challenges. I think it's got to be uh, at least 10. I'm not sure if it's 10 or 11. Yeah. That's amazing. And how, yeah. how do you feel when you finish it? Really good and really tired. I bet. Um, yeah, just like everybody. I mean, it's, it is a marathon. It's like climbing a mountain. And it's both physically exhausting and mentally exhausting to pack that into a month, but it's also exhilarating. You know, I don't like drafting. And so NaNoWriMo helps me get through that rough draft and just get it out really fast. And part of the benefit is um, not only getting through the draft quickly, but also taking um, risks. And, and, and mm. you know, like th- there's something about writing 1,700 words a day, like you got to keep the word count going forward. And so you're going to take creative risks that you might not ordinarily take if you're writing a little bit more slowly. So I like that aspect of it. The benefits of a streak like NaNoWriMo, I think, are pretty clear. But just as clear is how most humans could fall victim to the planning fallacy as they enter that streak. They overestimate what they can achieve in the short run, in other words, each day of that November month, And so they might try to do too much too soon and struggle. And then the prospect of having to do that for 30 days, it's too much to bear. And so they quit. They quit NaNoWriMo. 
Grant and his team know that this tends to happen most often within the first five days. And they drop out for very similar reasons. You know, it's, it's really interesting to me that once people fall just a little bit behind, they'll, they'll give up on the whole project, mm-hmm. you know? Like, like, why give up on day eight just because you've missed three days of writing, you know? I think you should trust that there may be a second or third wind within you, um, especially if you've quit writing because you've hit the wall or something, and a lot of people do hit the wall mid-month. So I think the streak or the perfection of the streak uh, is is really overrated. And NaNoWriMo is so so much about getting rid of your inner perfectionist, you know, like uh, banishing your inner editor so you can write those words and just accept that you're going to write a crappy rough draft because every writer in the history of the world has always written a crappy rough draft. So get rid of your perfectionist when it comes to streaks, too. It's not about perfection. It's about improvement. Acknowledge that you want to do something great, something deeply resonant in this world, but ensure you're taking little steps towards that today. It's so easy to get discouraged, whether because the long-term ambition seems too daunting to achieve or you've packed so much into the short term, you can't sustain it. Maybe these feelings are unavoidable. And in between my own constant consumption of ice cream and binge-watching Marvel movies, I've definitely fallen victim to those feelings before just like a ton of other people, millions of them. So it's not about avoiding these feelings that we have. Maybe it's about confronting them and then knowing what actions to take when we do. It's not the ability to create a perfect streak or perfect work so much as bounce back when things don't work out or we even stopped. It's the ability to persist when things get hard, to keep going. The thing is, life in so many ways isn't built on streaks. It's built on um, streaks, but with lapses there. And you've got to learn how to come back. I love this quote by Joyce Carol Oates. She says, you don't know the first sentence of your novel until you've written the last sentence. What that told me is like, and oftentimes like when I was uh, writing with that kind of ponderous preciousness or perfectionism, when I revised my novels, I would find that the first chapter would just get cut (laughs) or somehow like changed dramatically. So all that time I was spending on it really was kind of wasted time. And so I think like NaNoWriMo by the the whole premise is you're, you have, you love your first draft, love it for its very crappiness, you know, love it for its ability to to invite you to to be playful with it and to even make fun of your words and laugh at yourself. I mean, that's a great creative moment to be able to laugh at yourself and still proceed. And so I think that that pressure of writing so many words in uh, so few days, you, you cannot do it um, with your inner editor around. You have to banish your inner editor and just enjoy the mess of the words, really. We turn again to Georgia Lupi, the information designer and partner at Pentagram, to hear more about her streak, Dear Data. I asked her what it felt like for her and Stephanie to experience that last day, that last moment, following 52 whole weeks of shipping. In other words, what was it like to actually claim the reward of a creative streak? Finishing. You know, it was a, it was a Monday morning and I finished my drawing. Uh, it was actually, I think, the end of August because we started September 1st. And so it was the end of August. And- she just got back from a vacation and found herself drawing it last minute on a Sunday evening. But it just wasn't coming out right. Well, obviously, because it was the last one, I also wanted to be very perfect. And so I drew a lot, a lot, a lot of them. But she finished it. And the next morning, she walked over to the usual mailbox and held the card there. I was in this moment of, again, indecisiveness where I would just like 
put put the card in in the mailbox and then take it back and they put him in the mailbox and take it back and take a photo of it i really wanted to memorialize that moment but i do remember it as this a very very smiley moment and i remember that right after i sent uh stephanie a text saying done sent are we over and so we started to just you know think about the project and of course a refreshing feeling freedom of then walking without needing to observe and track and pull out my phone to note and like pull out my piece of paper to write down things so it was kind of like a very flying higher uh, moment of a monday in a way but the next week georgia and stephanie were texting again and they asked each other what now how does one leave without tracking data for a week? So it was also like, you know, the, the void when you finish, say, high school or you finish college, you're like, and now what's going on now? So it was also a little, you know, uh, liberating, but also a little, I don't know, I think unexpectedly um, too open. <laughs> <laughs> How did this change the way you look at the minute daily moments of our lives? Because I do feel like that's that's where you were pulling this material. It wasn't you didn't seem to force yourselves to travel to some grand location and get this like big sweeping feeling of inspiration. I mean, it's 52 weeks in a row, you're mm. living your lives pulling from the day to day. How did that change your outlook on seemingly daily moments? Well, I think really the thing that stays with me the most from Dear Data is that I learned how to pay attention. I really learned how the, the little moments um, in the right now can be so profound, especially when they become memories. So for example, now by looking at the book with all of the collections of the data, I mean, because they are there, because they're there in form of, again, data points, I, I can see so many memories of where, say, my dad was still alive or where my grandparents were still alive, moments where, you know, it was still the beginning of my life in New York. And I think the idea of paying more attention and even logging in whatever kind of way to create memories that then will stay with you is something that I, I have found kind of very fascinating. And, uh, and But really learning how to pay attention and, you know, I mean, as much as I don't want these to feel like a mindfulness project, I mean, even really learning how to be in the moment way yeah. more. Like, because being really attentive to what's happening right now, it like prevents your mind from wondering. And, uh, and I found that very um, mindful in a way, meditative almost. Really think about something you're really curious about. If there's something that obsesses you that you like spend time and hours talking about, thinking about, reading about, well, that has legs to become something that you will want to spend time on. And so if there's a topic and we're not talking about, you know, kind of like particular skills that you want to learn, but if there is a topic that, again, you are obsessed about right now, well, you can sort of like transform that into a project, into a streak of something that you're exploring, that you're recording, that you're drawing, that you're writing, that you're photographing. I know I have to write two hours a day. And so that means I have to be very intentional about my time. And I have to look at how I spend my time throughout the day and how am I going to open up a two-hour window, especially if I'm not one of those writers who wakes up at five. So there's usually something I will have to give up for that month. Um, whether it's Netflix or social media or, you know, Friday night parties. And so if you want to be a writer or a serious writer, then you usually do have to give up something. Because really, literally, you can't stop thinking about it. And so I think the creative brief for everybody would be like, okay, how can I turn my current obsession into something that will make me also grow some skills or like explore something new? 
locating or identifying the tiny moments of time you have in your life and use them creatively. If I had 15 minutes while I'm waiting for my daughter to get ready for school, if I open up my laptop and write for those 15 minutes, or if I use a half hour at lunch or whatever it is, you know? As opposed to thinking about, oh wow, you know, I need to spend X amount of time developing these skills and doing it over and over again, and so what can I do? So I think I would just rephrase the brief for yourself. <laughs> it all adds up. No one on their deathbed has said, oh, I wish I would have kept a cleaner house. But they have said, I wish I would have written that novel, or I wish I would have put my voice into the world, whatever it is. And so I think you've got to honor that, that you, if you really want to do this, you've just got to bite the bullet, take off the Band-Aid, jump in. And also just know you can do it. You know, that you are making yourself vulnerable to a degree. You are risking something, but it's not that much. You know, just putting your voice into the world, waking up and making creativity a priority for a month, that's one thing, like most of us, when we become adults, we don't make creativity a priority. It falls lower and lower on our to-do list until it's entirely off that list. Make creativity a priority for a month, you know? Just do that for one month out of your adult life. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production help from both Molly Donovan and Alana Nevins. If you had any thoughts or questions at all, email me. I'm jay at unthinkablemedia.com and I'm also at jayaconzo on Twitter. This episode is both possible and free thanks to you. As I mentioned at the very top, I literally couldn't do this work or this show without you. To support this show, consider buying a book or subscribing to my newsletter. Both of those projects can be found at jayaconzo.com along with everything that I do. We're going to keep pushing forward with a very focused exploration from here. The concept is resonance. What does it take to make resonant work? That is pretty much all we're exploring from this point forward on this show. And we've dug up a lot of science and psychology, a lot of stories. But if you think that you, your company, or even better, someone else you know, <laughs> if you think you have a great story or know a great story about people or teams with passionate fans, people focused on resonance, not just empty reach, please shoot me a note or a DM. We're looking for great stories all about resonating deeply. What does it take to create more resonant work? I'm Jay Conzo, and we're back with some brand new stories all about that concept really soon. But until then, keep making what matters. See ya. Thank you to our sponsor, The Juice. Content marketing is a noble form of marketing, or at least it should be. 
rather than interrupt the content people actually want, become the content they actually want. But too often, if you, like me, want to hear from other people publishing B2B content, all you find is rehashed commodity junk. It's low on originality and forget entertainment value. I mean, that's just not a question. But our sponsor, The Juice, is just as frustrated and they're doing something about it. They've curated and sorted the best B2B content with more added to their library all the time to help you get around all those obnoxious forms and redundant pieces of content you find on Google to instead find, collect, and share the best ideas about marketing and sales being published today. It's kind of like Spotify for B2B. So you can create a free account today and find the best, most resonant content about your profession. Visit thejuicehq.com. Thanks. Thanks.